All right, Wrestling with Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton standing in the confessional corner, coming to you today with Apology Article 5, paragraphs 38 to 61, reminding us of the idea that even as a Christian, Christ is still our mediator. He is still the one interceding for us. He is still our atoning sacrifice, especially as we look in these paragraphs from Melanchthon today as we see him pointing out that no one can keep the law perfectly. Therefore, no one can love perfectly either. So we begin with paragraph 38. Now let us reply to the objection stated above. The adversaries are right in thinking that love is the fulfilling of the law and that obedience to the law is certainly righteousness. But they make a mistake in this matter. They think that we are justified by the law. Since we are not justified by the law, we receive forgiveness of sins and reconciliation through faith for Christ's sake. This is not because of love or the fulfilling of the law. It is necessarily follows that we are justified through faith in Christ. In the second place, this fulfilling of the law or obedience towards the law is indeed righteousness when it is complete. But it is small and impure in us. So our righteousness is not pleasing for its own sake and is not accepted for its own sake. From what has been said above, it is clear that justification means not the beginning of the renewal, but the reconciliation by which we are accepted afterward. It can now be seen much more clearly that starting to fulfill the law does not justify, because such fulfillment is only accepted on account of faith. Nor must we trust that we are accounted righteous before God by our own perfection and fulfilling of the law, but rather for Christ's sake. Keeping the law is certainly righteousness. But our keeping the law, our obedience, is small and impure. It is not complete. It is definitely lacking. Therefore, we still need a mediator, which is where Melanchthon picks up in paragraph 41. In the third place, Christ does not stop being our mediator after we have been renewed. They err who imagine that he has merited only a first grace, and that afterward we please God and merit eternal life by our fulfilling of the law. Christ remains mediator, and we should always be confident that for his sake we have a reconciled God, even though we are unworthy. Paul clearly teaches this when he says, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. 1 Corinthians 4.4 4. Paul knows that through faith he is counted righteous, for Christ's sake, according to the passage, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, Psalm 32, 1. But this forgiveness is always received through faith. Likewise, the credit for righteousness of the gospel comes from the promise. Therefore, it is always received through faith. It must always be regarded as certain that we are counted righteous through faith for Christ's sake. If the regenerate afterward think that they will be accepted because of the following fulfilling of the law, when would a conscience be certain that it has pleased God? We never satisfy the law. So we must always run back to the promise. Our infirmity must be recognized in this matter. We must regard it as certain that we are counted righteous for the sake of Christ, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Romans 8. 34. If anyone thinks that he is righteous and accepted because of his own fulfillment of the law, and not because of Christ's promise, he dishonors his high priest. This cannot be understood. How can someone 
imagine that a person is righteous before God when Christ is excluded as the atoning sacrifice and mediator. So we have in this the pointing out that the Roman theologians taught that Jesus gives us a first grace, that our baptism only covers original sin, and therefore we are able from that point on to be able to fulfill the law. But Melanchthon says, no, no, we must also understand that our infirmity is still here. The original sin still clings to us after baptism. As Luther will say in numerous of his works, the old Adam is a good swimmer. Even though we drown him daily in our baptism, he can still swim and swim with the best of them. But Melanchthon reminds us that the grace that Jesus gives us is complete and total grace. There is nothing lacking out of that grace. Everything that we have, everything that we receive in the righteousness of the gospel is all that. Pure gift, pure and simple. There is nothing that is remaining for us to do. Yes, as we will see throughout this article, we do still need to do good works, but not for justification. It's not to make us righteous with God. It's to show that we are righteous before God because of Christ. Jesus stresses this himself in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory, not to you, but to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. So yes, we are to do good works. We are to let our light shine as being the light of the world. But that light is simply a reflection of the light given to us in being declared righteous for Christ's sake, not for ours. We continue on in paragraph 45 of Article 5. In the fourth place, what need is there of a long discussion? All scripture, all the church cries out that the law cannot be satisfied. Therefore, starting to fulfill the law does not please on its own account, but on account of faith in Christ. Otherwise, the law always accuses us. For who loves or fears God enough? Who has enough patience to bear the troubles brought by God? Who does not frequently doubt whether human affairs are ruled by God's counsel or by chance? Who does not frequently doubt whether he is heard by God? Who is not frequently enraged because the wicked enjoy a better life than the righteous, because the righteous are oppressed by the wicked? Who fulfills his own calling? Who loves his neighbor as himself? Who is not tempted by lust? Paul says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Romans 7.19 Likewise, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Verse 25 of the same chapter. Here he openly declares that he serves the law of sin. David says in Psalm 143.2 Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Here even God's servant prays for the removal of judgment. Likewise, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Psalm 32, 2. Therefore, in our weakness, sin is always present, which could be charged against us. A little while after, David says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you. Here he shows that even saints ought to seek forgiveness of sins. They are, more blind, they are more than blind who do not realize that wicked desires in the flesh are sins, of which Paul says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Galatians 5.17 The flesh distrusts God, 
trust in present things, seeks human aid in trouble, even contrary to God's will. It flees from suffering, which it ought to bear because of God's commands. It doubts God's mercy and so on. The Holy Spirit in our hearts fights against such tendencies in order to suppress and kill them and to produce new spiritual motives. We will collect more testimonies below about this topic, although they are clearly everywhere, not only in the scriptures, but also in the Holy Fathers. So again, the questions that plague us, especially in paragraph 46, that we know, we know the answers are no one fears God enough. No one is not tempted by lust. No one fulfills his own calling. No one loves his neighbor as himself. But that is what we are called to do in the law, and we fail miserably. So now we have those testimonies from the church fathers beginning in paragraph 51. Augustine Wells says, All God's commandments are fulfilled when whatever is not done is forgiven. Therefore, he requires faith even in good works. He says this to show that we may believe we please God for Christ's sake, and even our works are not worthy and pleasing of themselves. Jerome against the Pelagians says, Then we are righteous when we confess that we are sinners, and that our righteousness stands not in our own merit, but in God's mercy. Where? Does Jerome say our righteousness is? Our confession of our sinfulness. That is where our righteousness comes in. Not because we need to be better sinners to be more righteous. No, no, no. We need to confess that we are sinners. Only then can we see the righteousness that comes through Christ. We pick up in paragraph 53. Therefore, when starting to fulfill the law, faith ought to be present, which certainly believes that we have a reconciled God for Christ's sake. For mercy cannot be received except through faith, as has been repeatedly said above. Paul says in Romans 3.31, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Here's what we ought to understand. People regenerated through faith not only receive the Holy Spirit and have motives that agree with God's law, but we ought also to realize that they are far distant from the law's perfection. This point has the greatest importance by far, and we must add it to the argument also. We cannot conclude that we are counted righteous before God because of our fulfilling of the law. Justification must be sought elsewhere in order that the conscience may become peaceful. For we are not righteous before God as long as we flee from God's judgment and are angry with God. Therefore, we must conclude that we are counted righteous for Christ's sake, being reconciled through faith. This is not because of the law or our works. Because of faith, beginning to fulfill the law pleases God. Because of faith, there is no charge that we will fulfill the law imperfectly, even though the sight of our impurity terrifies us. If justification is to be sought elsewhere, our love and works do not justify. Christ's death and satisfaction ought to be placed far above our purity, far above the law itself. This truth ought to be set before us so that we can be sure of this. We have a gracious God because of Christ's satisfaction and not because of our fulfilling the law. Again, this idea that we think that we can work our way out of our sins the law is never going to show us that we are out of sin. It's always going to point out something else that truly terrifies us 
if we pay attention to it. But, what does Melanchthon say? Christ's death and satisfaction ought to be placed far above our purity, far above the law itself. Jesus' death and resurrection, that kernel of the gospel, that event that causes the gospel to actually have power, is much more powerful, is much higher than the law itself. We finish off with paragraphs 58 to 61. Paul teaches this in Galatians 3.13 when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This means that the law condemns all people, but Christ without sin has borne the punishment of sin. He has been made a victim for us and has removed that right of the law to accuse and condemn those who believe in him. He himself is the atonement for them. For his sake they are now counted righteous. Since they are counted righteous, the law cannot accuse or condemn them even though they have not actually satisfied the law. Paul writes the same way to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 10. You have been filled in him. This is like saying, although you are still far from the perfection of the law, the remnants of sin do not condemn you. For Christ's sake, we have a sure and firm reconciliation. If you believe, even though sin dwells in your flesh. This is why Lutherans make a big deal out of being simul justus epicator, simultaneously saint and sinner. We are righteous and we are unrighteous at the same time because our original sin still clings to us. So he goes on in paragraph 59. The promise should always be in sight. Because of his promise, God wishes to be gracious and to justify for Christ's sake, not because of the law or our works. In this promise, timid consciences should seek reconciliation and justification. By this promise, we should sustain ourselves and be confident that we have a gracious God for Christ's sake because of his promise. So works can never make a conscience peaceful. Only the promise can. If justification and peace of conscience must be sought in something other than love and works, then love and works do not justify. This is true even though they are virtues and belong to the righteousness of the law insofar as they are a fulfilling of the law. Obedience to the law justifies by the righteousness of the law, if a person fulfills it. But imperfect righteousness of the law is not accepted by God unless it is accepted because of faith. So legal righteousness does not justify. That is, it neither reconciles nor regenerates nor by itself makes us acceptable to God. From this, it is clear that we are justified before God through faith alone. Through faith alone, we receive forgiveness of sins and reconciliation. Because reconciliation or justification is a matter promised for Christ's sake, not for the law's sake. Therefore, it is received through faith alone. Although, when the Holy Spirit is given, the fulfilling of the law follows. So far, our reading for this week, but the point in this last paragraphs are, works can never make a conscience peaceful. Only the promise can. And that promise goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 with God promising the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Not because of anything the woman did or the man did, 
but because of that seed, being the Son of God and the Son of Man, all in one. We'll hear more about that as we continue on in the confessional corner, as we continue to dig deeper into the Psalms and the rest of the scriptures. But until next time, this is Pastor Doug Minton, standing in the confessional corner, helping you to wrestle with theology this week. Amen.